The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Today I want to go back to the series on the life of Joseph. How big is your God? I think this will be the next to the last sermon in this series, unless the Lord leads me otherwise. And what I want to do this morning is in a sense, pause and take stock of where we are. You know, we've started this series several weeks ago. This will be the eighth sermon, if my count is correct, regarding the life of Joseph. We've taken as our theme here, how big is your God? We've asked that question. And and I ask it again this morning, how big is your God? We just had a long list of prayer requests. How big is your God? Is is he big enough to take care of those prayer requests? Is he big enough for us to trust our needs to? Is he big enough for us to walk by faith behind? Is he big enough for us to uh, rest in his sovereignty and his love for us? How, How big is your God? And I remind you as well that asking that question doesn't mean we're adding to God or trying to make him to be bigger than he, than, than he otherwise would be. He's already the biggest God that there could be, okay? The question is not, are we going to make God bigger? The question is, how big is God going to be in your understanding and in your mind? How big is your God? And today... As part of that, I want us to take stock for just a minute. I want to ask the question, how did we get here? How did we get to where we are in the life of Joseph? Remember, it's Joseph 37 and verse 2 is the first time we read about Joseph. And we're told he's a 17-year-old, innocent, uh, naive maybe, uh, carefree to a great extent, little shepherd boy trying to follow uh, And do what his father would have him to do. And now, as we have finished up chapter 46, he's a 39 or 40 year old um, adult who is now married with two children and has become the, uh, the prime minister, if you will, of Egypt. He's a man who very easily, in those 20 some odd years, could have become a cynic could have become a bitter, middle-aged or old man based on what he had been through. But we've seen that Joseph is not there. He is not a cynic. He is not bitter. He is not a grumpy old man, as sometimes I've been accused of being. (laughs) He's not someone who uh, has turned to the negative in his dealings with life. Rather, he's still faithful. He's still positive, he's very forgiving, and he's following God. Now, how did we get here? How did we get here? There's some theological matters that we need to talk about this morning. There's some some real important theology here that you and I need to understand in order to realize how we got to the point that we are. One of the problems with the life of Joseph that many in the world get tripped up on is they see the life of Joseph as as a 
a, an orchestration, if you will, by God himself. In other words, they see, they see that everything, in fact, that's what the absoluter would tell us. That's what the, the Calvinists would tell us. They would say, okay, everything that happened in the life of Joseph, God caused to occur. He caused the sin of the brothers. He caused the sin of Potiphar's wife. He caused the sin and forgetfulness of the butler and, the, and, and all these things. And he caused all the tribulations to come upon him. And, 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 and by the way, uh, in Joseph's life, we figured out that all things work together for good. But you just got to trust it in your own life that God's doing all this stuff and it's going to work out for your good. Okay. There's a misapplication of Romans 8, 28 to Joseph's life. Let me just remind you, and we'll come back to this in a minute. Romans 8 and 28 is a wonderful verse. It's not a Calvinist verse. Just like John 3, 16 is not an Armenian verse. It's a Bible verse. It's a verse for you as a child of God that will encourage and uplift you if you understand what it really means. So let's talk about some of these theological matters. How is it that God, who has a holy nature and yet is sovereign, can get us to the point where we are in the life of Joseph without violating his very nature? Let's talk about that for a few minutes. First of all, the nature of God. God is holy and does not get his hands dirty with sin. God is holy. The word the word holy means sacred or set apart, pure. And, and, and we're to live holy lives, but we can't ever live completely holy lives, but we have a completely holy God. Probably the most important aspect of the nature of God is His holiness. He is, you know, one of the most painful parts of Jesus' experience here on this earth was, I don't believe, for, was His physical death. I don't, I don't believe that was the most painful thing he experienced on the cross. I think the most painful parts of his experience as a man here in this life was he experienced sin in a way the Godhead had never experienced. God knew about it. God saw it. God understood it better than we do. But when he became a man, he walked among it. And he got uh, rubbed up against it, if you will. Now, there was no sin in him. He never did sin, and he never had a sin nature, but there came a point where all the sins of all his elect people were on him. And the Godhead had never experienced that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had been pure, holy, and we're told that Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He had, he had never ex experienced sin in the way he experienced it on the cross. And I believe that was one of the most painful parts of it because, because as I said, remember the nature of God is that he is holy. First Samuel 2 and verse 2 says, there is none holy as the Lord. There's nobody you can compare him to. In fact, in that what Isaiah 40 tells us, verse 25, he says, to whom will you liken me? Or who shall I be equal to? You're not going to find another God out there to compare God to. You're not going to say, well, he's like this or he's like that. You can't do it because he is unequaled he is unique he is singular in the life of his creation in the existence of all eternity he is singular there is no comparison to God and in his holiness he is holy holy 
holy, according to the cherubims in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, 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 threefold holiness for the threefold triune God. He is holy beyond any measure that man could possibly have. 31 times in the Old Testament, his name is, is called the Holy One of Israel. 31 times, that's his very name. His very name. You know, if my name, if I were to be named according to my nature, I'd be, I'd be called old sinner Chris. <laughs> That's who I'd be. I wouldn't be holy Chris. I'd be sinful Chris, you know. In fact, I, sorry to say it, you're going to be in that same category. But God's very nature is holiness. We're told in Isaiah 57 that he dwells in the high and the holy place. Not only is his nature holy, but the place he lives is holy. Perhaps over in, as I've already quoted this, really, but over in Hebrews chapter 1, we find a, perhaps, or Habakkuk, I'm sorry, Habakkuk chapter 1, uh, we find probably the most, uh, uh, the best description that I can possibly come up with to God's relationship with sin. In Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12, as Habakkuk is, is lamenting the unrighteousness that he sees around him, he says in verse 12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? That's the name he calls God. Mine holy one. We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. The context here is, is not necessary to what I, the point I want to make, but as I've always said, context is everything. Just understand he's, he's pointing to those who are violent and are, taking, are violently taking advantage of God's people. And he says, you're the Holy One, and you've ordained judgment. And then he says in verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look upon iniquity. That's about the best description of the holiness of God I know. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't see iniquity. doesn't mean he doesn't see sin, but that means that he will not have it and tolerate it in his very presence. If you doubt this, look at the cross and listen to Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer to that question is because I, as, or Jesus Christ, if he were speaking further, he would say, I have become sin for my people. He hath made me to be sin for my people and therefore I can no longer exist in the presence of God who is holy, holy, holy. Now, another attribute of God is that He is sovereign and ultimately He is in control of His creation. Okay? You remember Daniel chapter 4? Oh, I love the statement by this, this pagan king who God has... Uh, Revealed some things too. I, I, you know, is he a child of God? I think probably so, but I'm not going to argue the issue with you. But I know one thing, he knew some truth, whether he was a child of God or not. Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 34 of Daniel chapter 4, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. <laughs> That's a pretty good name for God, isn't it? That you have people in your life, you have, you have, uh, uh, thing, people at work maybe that are high above you, maybe higher than you are. Maybe, you know, you look at the president of the United States, he's a lot higher than I am. 
Uh, but I'm not, but even the President of the United States is not the Most High. The Most High sits high above all, you see, in the holy place. He sits in the high in the holy place. He is holy, holy, holy. But he's also, we're told, that he blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. If you have a dominion, that means you dominate it, right? If you have a kingdom, that means you're king over it, right? That means you're in charge of it. That means you have some authority over it. Let's see how much authority God has. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. There's not a pope in the Vatican that is equal with me. There's not a ruler in Russia. There's not a president of the United States. There's not a, uh, there's not a priest or anyone or a preacher, anyone or anywhere else that is equal to me because all the inhabitants of the earth, when compared to God, they're reputed as nothing. You don't know how big you are in the sight of God? <laughs> Can you envision nothing? Think about nothing. It's hard to think of, really, if you think, you know, because everywhere that you are, there's something. But think about it, nothing. That's you in the sight of God. There's one place, he says, we're less than nothing. I can envision nothing, you know, it's hard to do because we've even got air out here that's invisible, but it's still there. But in the sight of God, it's as if there were no atoms, there were no molecules, there was nothing. That's where you are. But listen, it's worse, you're less than nothing. That's where you are in your nature <laughs> compared to God. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? God is sovereign. God has his way in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 115 and verse 3. It says, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. I mean, I've used this comparison of myself many times. I don't always get my way. I always intend to get my way. You know, I, I plan tonight. I, I kind of want to watch. I want to watch the Super Bowl tonight after services. Not during services. Don't you miss the Super Bowl? The services for the Super. We're going to have a Super Bowl here. Okay. It's going to be super and spiritual and all that anyway. But I plan, you know, I've got a plan in my, formulated in my mind about after service tonight, what I'm going to do. And, and, and I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward. I'm going to go back. But you know what I bet you? I bet you it's going to get thwarted. Because <laughs> I have, I don't think I've watched a Super Bowl in the last 10 years that didn't have some interruption or some you know, the Iron Bowl or the, or the National Championship, you name it. Whatever you plan to do, I have been interrupted uh, so many times that I no longer have any confidence in any plans that I make. That's not God. Said, My God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever He hath pleased. He's done everything that He wants. Anything that He wants, He has done it. Isaiah chapter 46, I want you to read this, and, and we're going to lead into our question here. Remember, we're talking about the life of Joseph. But Isaiah chapter 50, 46, probably one of the greatest, uh, most memorable verses to me from my childhood growing up, uh, hearing Brother Vaughn preach over, over at Double Branch. 
is this, ver- this set of verses because it reminded me then of the sovereignty of God. And notice in verse 9, Isaiah, we could read the whole, the whole chapter. Uh, one of the things about Isaiah that makes the scholars believe that he didn't write when he said he did. He, he, he wrote, uh, according to his own testimony, he wrote this, this prophecy uh, 50 to 100 years. I can't remember exactly the time, but it's a good long time before uh, the Babylonian captivity occurred. But in his, in his writings, he prophesies not just that, some, that the Persians would come, but the very name of Cyrus, who would actually come one day, as a Persian king, he, he prophesies that and that he would do the will of God. They say, well, there's no way he could have known that. But I agree with that. There's no way humanly he could have known that. Now, spiritually, God let him in on the secret. That's why he could write it. <laughs> and that's why I believe what it says about when it was written. But anyway, he's talking about some of that. And in verse 9, he says, remember the former things of old. Now, that's a good point, isn't it? I don't want to preach on that this, this morning, but, but isn't it a good idea when you come across new things in life, new problems, new questions, new issues, isn't it a good idea to remember the former things of old? Some of you young folks that are in the colleges now where they try to teach you that evolution is the law, evolution is a fact, it's good to remember some of the former things of old. For example, remember that God created this world. That's about as old as it gets, right? <laughs> That's about as old as you, you really don't have to go back any farther than that. Remember the former things of old, okay? God created this universe. He can do with it as he pleases. He created it as he pleased. He can do what he wants to. You could go back a little farther. If you're struggling with the, uh, uh, the uncertainties of life, you're struggling with problems of life, you can go back beyond time and say God chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's good to remember that. Sometimes I forget that and I get stressed out and I get worried. But when I can remember that, I say no matter who is opposing me, no matter what I'm facing, no matter what the tribulation is, whether it's sickness or death or destruction or whatever it may be, if I remember the former things of the most old things, which is that God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, I'm going to be all right. I can face these troubles. I think that's some of the things that Joseph did. In his life, but we'll come back to that. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And he goes on to tell us about things that are coming, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God is sovereign. And yet he's holy. So how do these work together? Well, notice first of all that in verse 10, he didn't say determining are predestinating the end from the beginning. He said declaring the end from the beginning. It doesn't mean the same thing. Predestination never applies to events, but only to God's people. You know, it doesn't even apply to those that aren't God's people. Don't ever let anybody trick you into believing in something called double predestination, that God came in like a gunfighter and he shot a bunch and he left some others alive. That's not what God did. 
God swooped in like a hero and he saved his people, a certain number of them, a multitude that has no, we have no ability to count. He saved them. And the others he left to their own devices. If you want to blame anybody for hell, for men going to hell, blame Adam. Blame Adam. But notice, notice here we have the sovereignty of God up against God's holiness. So how did we get here in the life of Joseph? without God violating his very nature by playing around with sin. So, so let's talk about that for a few minutes. And let's, 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 uh, let's talk about the providence of God. There's a difference in the providence and the predestination of God. Don't get providence and predestination mixed up. And don't mix Romans 8.28 up as a providence verse it's not that's a predestination verse okay that's an eternal salvation verse but yet even if romans 8 28 is not a providence verse yet there is such a thing as the providence of god so how does it work that god is able to do what he did in the life of joseph well probably the best way i know to put it is this God is a better domino player than you are. Say, what are you talking about, Brother Chris? I don't have a good example, as good an example from my own experience to use as the experience that Brother Mike Ivey related to me about an uncle of his. Brother Mike Ivey had an uncle who was absolutely the best domino player that he ever knew. Brother Mike told me about Times when he was younger, his family would get together and they would play dominoes. They would, and, and, and anytime you teed up a game of dominoes, the best you could hope for if you weren't on this particular uncle's team is maybe a tie, and that only happened every once in a while. He said he was the best domino player he ever knew. By the time you had gone through two rounds, he had figured out every player's dominoes what they had, he had figured out a strategy that he could use that he would win, and he would win almost every time. He is the best domino player that Brother Mike ever knew. And not one time did anybody accuse him of predestinating the outcome of the domino game. Think about that. (laughs) Now listen, God is a better domino player than you will ever be. He's a better domino player than Brother Mike Ivey's uncle. (laughs) And God, like Brother Mike's uncle, except in a much greater way, has no need to resort to predestination to accomplish his purposes in life. You see what I'm getting at? God did not send envy and hatred into the lives and hearts of Joseph's brothers. God did not stir up lust in the heart of Potiphar's wife. God did not make the butler of Pharaoh a forgetful, self-focused person. They were like that already by their very nature. God didn't cause the brothers to envy or Potiphar's wife to lust or the butler to forget. He simply left them to do what their nature dictated that they would do. I've said this before about my career as a prosecutor and and, and anyone who's an attorney 
uh, would say the same thing, whether they're prosecutor or not. And many of you, if not most of you out there, would have a similar experience in your jobs. But I've told people before that I've made my living by trying to read people. By trying to read people and figure out what they would do. You know, that's what we're doing when we strike a jury. If you've ever served on a jury, you know, we're not up there trying to corruptly influence you to, to, to make a decision in our favor. But what we are doing, what I'm doing, is I'm trying to figure out what you would do based on these facts. And I've had a pretty good run of success out of the 50-some-odd cases I've tried. I've won 40 of them. And so, you know, we've had a jury that we pretty much figured out. Uh, I didn't, you know, I figured out that they would vote more likely to convict based on these facts than somebody out there that I maybe struck from the jury that I didn't think would. I've also made some big mistakes. <laughs> Left a couple of folks on a couple of juries that uh, let somebody go when they when I knew the person was guilty and they they were for whatever reason I found out later I didn't know everything about that person and their prior experience with law enforcement or various things like that. But I made my living trying to read people and figure out what they would do. And not one time in any of the jury trials that I participated in did I predestinate the outcome, even though I won even though my side prevailed, you see. See, that's God in a much greater way. It's such a, in a perfect way. God knows every part about you. He knows exactly what you will do in response to this particular set of stimuli or that particular set of circumstances. He knows what you will do if, you, if he leaves you alone and doesn't intervene. And thank the Lord, he sometimes does intervene. And, and helps me to overcome my human nature. See, he didn't need to predestinate them to do evil. He didn't need to stir up wickedness in their hearts. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but sometimes read about Pharaoh and you'll see where God says, I will harden his heart. And I think that occurs about 10 times. But you'll also read just about the same number of times, about 10 times, where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, I will read you this. In Exodus chapter 3, in verse, well, chapter 3 is where God is revealing himself to Moses and telling him what's going to happen. I'm going to send you down to Egypt. I'm going to deliver my people. And then he says in verse uh, 19, he says, and I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. Notice, notice God did not say, I will cause the king of Egypt not to let you go. How did, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By leaving him alone. By leaving him alone and not restraining the wickedness that was in there. See, God suffers sin, but he never causes it. You, you don't know where sin comes from? Look with me over to James, the first chapter of James. Sin, you know, say, well, God, if, if God didn't cause it, where did it come from? Well, listen to this. In James chapter 1, in verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's where sin comes from. You know, I'll tell you something else, a little corollary there is the devil didn't make you do it. <laughs> we always like to say that, oh, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. He may have tempted you to do it. 
He may have led you to do it, but the sin occurred when you're tempted and drawn away of your own lust and enticed. In verse 15, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So what is our response to this? Well, just what is to be will be, and God's working all these things out. No, he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not err. Based on your understanding that God doesn't cause sin and God doesn't stir up sin within people or within you, don't err. Don't get mixed up on that and don't you fall into that trap and don't you blame God or the devil or anybody else. If you've committed a sin, it's on you, beloved, not on God. Because it says, do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow turning. <laughs> what, what does God send? He doesn't send sin. He sends good and perfect gifts. That's what He does. <laughs> Something that God does, probably, and probably the best description of how God deals with sin, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God makes ways of escape for us from the temptations and the trials of life. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, that, I preached on it some time back about how we get this mixed up. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. You're not alone. Everybody gets tempted. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, there's a lot of preaching that could be done on that, but what I want to focus you in on today is the relationship God has to temptation and sin. He doesn't send it. He suffers it. See that? He will not suffer you to be tempted. See, he's suffering a certain amount of it. He's suffering a certain amount of things to happen in your life, but he's not enjoying it, <laughs> and he's not sending it. He's permitting it. And I don't even like to use the word permit. If we want to be biblical, we use the word suffer. He suffers it. Okay. He also, there's such a thing as God's restraint, restraining grace or restraining power, I should say, not grace. His restraining power. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read in here about uh, a, a time when Christians could be shaken in mind or troubled, according to verse 2. He said, don't be shaken in mind or troubled. Uh, and he said, don't, verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the end times, shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And he talks about how he's opposing God. And, and he's talking about how that, uh, that he'd already warned them th that. In verse 7, he says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And I don't, again, I don't want to go too much into the context here and all that, but I want you to understand something. That word let means restrain. That word let means to hold back. And there is a restraining power of God. And sometimes God restrains the sins of man. In fact, he says in Psalm 76 and verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. In other words, what he doesn't restrain, ultimately he overrules. And that brings us to our answer, if you will, about how God deals with the sins of men. God does not sin the sins of men. He suffers them. 
God does not orchestrate the sins of men. He overrules them. See, that's what we call God's overruling providence. And that's what we have here in the life of Joseph. God overrules sin for our good. Often. And ultimately for his purposes. But he does not cause the sin. We go back to the life of Joseph. How did we get here? We see a lot of sin in the life of Joseph. And I don't mean his his sins, but sins of those around him and tribulations that, that tried him in a mighty way. God suffered much sin in the life of Joseph. But ultimately he overruled it for Joseph's good and to accomplish his purposes. And therefore Joseph could truthfully speak in chapter 45 of Genesis and verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, notice that Joseph never excused what they did. He never said, oh, well, you're not responsible for your actions. No, you sold me hither, he says back in verse 5. But he says, God, through his providential care, overruled even that. And ultimately, God protected me. For example, think about this. The Midianites showed up at just the right time. They dropped him off in just the right place. Potiphar's house. He met the butler in just the right set of circumstances. Pharaoh dreamed on just the perfect night, right? All of these things came together in a way where God was providentially He was proven to be providentially taking care of Joseph. How do we get here? Well, remember, as we bring this to a close, what we said in the very beginning. The story of Joseph is the story of God's overruling providence. Overruling sin. He had a purpose in Joseph's life. And he providentially overruled the obstacles that were thrown up by Satan and sinful men. And ultimately, he says, and Joseph makes the statement in chapter 50 and verse 20, he says, as for ye, you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. I believe he's referring all the way back to the dreams that God sent to Joseph when he was a young boy. He was 17 years old. God meant that for good and through his overruling providence, he he overcame the obstacles that were thrown up by Satan. He overcame the obstacles of the envy and hatred and lust of sinful men and women in Joseph's life. He overruled the obstacles of forgetfulness in the lives of so many that should have been diligent to help Joseph out. And he came back to the point where he elevated Joseph to the almost to the kingship to be in second in command. The story of Joseph is a story of God's overruling providence. And the story of Joseph is the story of an obedient child of God. You see, if you take the position that, oh well, all things including my sins and the sins of men work together for my good, then it doesn't really matter too much how you act, right? It doesn't really matter too much about whether you get it right or whether you don't or whether you're 
you know, say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, act on this lustful impulse or I'm going to act on this greedy impulse, but God will fix it. God will overrule it. No, God uh, often lets us experience the results of our sins. (laughs) But in Joseph's life, Joseph's life is not the story of a disobedient child of God that God plucks out of the fire. You go read the prodigal son for that story. The prodigal son ended up eating husk or lusting after the husks of this world down in the pig pen. That's not Joseph. Joseph was in prison, but he was with God. Joseph was in the palace, but he was with God. And that's what mattered to Joseph. The story of Joseph is the story of an obedient child of God who's in the providential care, the the almighty hands of the, the Most High Himself. The story of Joseph is the story of walking by faith and not being deterred by the reversals of life. Joseph understood that he didn't have to read the script beforehand. He didn't have to open the book and figure out what the next 10 steps were or the next 20 steps were. He didn't have to say, well, I'm 17 now, but by the time I'm 20, this is the goal I need to reach or I've been unsuccessful. No, Joseph was content to walk by faith. He understood that walking by faith, when you have a big God, like Joseph had, is the only way to go. (laughs) Walking by faith is one step at a time with this God that he saw as the most high, uh, the one who was the most holy, the holy one of Israel, the one who had his, his, his life in the palms of his hands. Walking with Jesus, walking with God one step at a time will lead you to God's greatest purpose and blessings for your life. And finally, Joseph's story is a story of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation and love. And isn't that really what God wants us to do? Isn't that really what God requires of us? He says, I've got one law now. That's it. What about all those laws of the Old Testament? Well, they're all taken up in one new commandment. That you love one another. As I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. I had questions, great questions about Judah. And was he a child of God? Reuben, Simeon, some of the others. Now, by the end of the story, we recognize that they are God's children. I've had great questions about Lot. Oh, when I read about Lot in the Old Testament, I said, he surely can't be a child of God. Yet Peter tells us he is in spite of the way he acted. I have never questioned whether Joseph was a child of God or not. Because he walked by faith. And he displayed Before Christ even came into this world, before the New Testament was even a whisper uh, on the pen of of, of any of the writers, he displayed Christ-like love. Christ-like reconciliation with his brothers. So Joseph's story is a story of a, a little boy who had a big God And who understood 
that his God was being, who got to the place he was by God, who is holy, not violating his nature, but providentially overruling all the problems that he faced in life. That's the kind of big God that I think we need today. And I got good news for you. The God that Joseph served is the God that we serve today. Praise God. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.